0: Please open your Bible to Jonah chapter 1. Today we are going to begin a series through this little minor prophet that you find towards the end of the Old Testament. Now I'm going to assume that you are all familiar with the story of Jonah, and if I had to take a guess, of all the 12 minor prophets, I bet that you all know this book the best. However, when most people are asked what they know about this book, the very first thing that they will say is that they know about the fish. Now, interestingly, this story contains a fish, but it is not the main character. In fact, the fish plays such a very small role in this story that it is nearly insignificant. This story is about evangelism. This story is about prejudice and nationalism and obedience. And ultimately, this story is about Jesus Christ. The book of Jonah is a story of a prophet who rejected his calling and attempted to escape By running from the Lord. And in this first chapter, we see his disobedience on full display. Spoiler alert. Today, we are going to focus our attention a great deal on obedience to the Lord. In order to help me start off this point on a good foot, what I'd like to do at this point is to ask my kiddos, Ace Petra and Athens, to join me up here on stage. Come on up, guys. And they are going to help me by singing a song for you that they have been learning in their Classical Conversations class, which is part of our homeschooling uh, program that we do. And they're going to stand right up here, and they're going to sing a song that they've been learning there. Can you sing for them? Ready? One, two, three, go. Thank you, guys. Great job. Good job, buddy. Go ahead. Now, I know it's not easy to hear them without amplification and with the masks on, but I'll give you the hint of what they said initially, which is this. Obedience is the very best way to know what you believe. And what we're going to see today is that the fact that Jonah disobeyed indicates something that he believed about God. So obedience is the fruit of belief. It reveals what you think is really accurate and what is really true. If you imagine God to be kind, but a nearly senile grandfatherly figure who sits in the sky, then you're going to assume that you can sneak some sins past him or that if he notices your sins, he's going to either be too tired or too docile to discipline you for them. But if you rightly recognize God's sovereign rule over the entire universe and his perfect knowledge of all things and his ever-present spirit in all places then you're going to have what the scriptures call a fear of the Lord. The story of Jonah reveals that the love of God pursues his people. And when we disobey, God is too loving to allow us to depart. He rescues us from our own arrogant displays of rebellion. And in this story, we learn that this discipline can come sometimes in very extreme ways, even bizarre ways from the Lord. So please follow along now as I begin reading for us in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give thought to us and we may not perish. And they they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we might know whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I, know it because, uh, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it please you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, we ask that today, as we come to your word, that you would help us to understand it. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to guard against the prideful idea in our minds that we have an awareness of this story, therefore, we know everything necessary to live by it. Father, I pray that you would humble us today, show us something new from the text today, show us something that will conform us to the image of Christ today. And Lord, we can only do this by reliance upon you. We have an expectancy, Lord, for your work to take place today in this service. And Lord, we pray that you would indeed come and work in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's just start by getting a little bit more familiar with our main character in this story, will we? His name is Jonah. And this story about Jonah is not just an epic poem. It is not just some kind of a parable. This is a literal event with a literal man who lived in literal history. This is a story that really took place, as crazy as it might sound. We first learn about Jonah in 2 Kings chapter 14. And we see that he was serving in the 10 northern tribes known as the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of Jeroboam II. Now, to put that in context, that means that his ministry would have overlapped with the tail end of Elisha's prophetic ministry. Now, you will remember that when Elijah was a prophet, that he began ministering in a very specific way. He thought he was the only one left who had not bowed the knee to idols. But then the Lord reveals to him, actually, you're wrong. There are 7,000 that have not bowed the knee. Well, that's still a very small and insignificant minority numerically in that nation. So what does he do? He, under the leadership of the Lord, starts something called the School of the Prophets. One of those students of his was called Elisha. Elisha is raised up to take over the mantle from Elijah, and he continues on in the School of the Prophets. And it doesn't ever tell us this in the Scripture, but it is very likely that Jonah is one of the students from that school. The prophets that were going all throughout Israel teaching and training the people were from this school. So it stands to reason that this man was trained directly by the words and the work of Elisha. So this man was filled with wisdom, and he was filled with the word of the Lord to give it to the people. Due to the timing of this prophet, we know that Elisha was likely his his leader, and we see that he was proclaiming these words to the king, Jeroboam II, Jonah was the son of Amittai. Interestingly, the word Amittai is the word truth in Hebrew. Therefore, his name literally means that he is the son of truth. And then he takes truth to the nation. He, meaning Jeroboam II, is being spoken about here in 2 Kings 14 when we are introduced to Jonah, where it says, He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Araba, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet Who was from Gath Hefer? Now, pay attention here. This is what we learn about Jonah's ministry, about his prophecies that he gave during that time. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that He would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So He saved them by the hand of Jeroboam the son of Joash. So we know that the ministry of Jonah was to declare that even though they had been embattled, they would not be defeated. Now, here's the question. When it says they were going to be saved, saved from whom? Now, you have to understand that Israel was like a political football during this time that was being kicked back and forth between the people of Egypt and the Assyrians. And the Assyrians were well known as the most bloodthirsty and aggressive nation in the entire world. But the Lord spoke through Jonah that God would preserve them in the face of this impending danger. But there were also prophecies that were arising during that time, and that's some of the things that we find in the other minor prophets, that there would be an eventual downfall of Israel, and it would come to the Assyrian Empire. So Jonah hated the Assyrians. He looked to them not only as a national enemy that had already attacked them, but as the ones that he knew would eventually destroy them. So he was disgusted by their wickedness and their godlessness, but he was also furious that these people would be the ones that God would use to eventually raise them up, bring them in, and crush his own descendants. Now this is why it would have been so shocking and disturbing to Jonah to hear what God says in verse 2 when he says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria, But you might read that and say, but wait, wait a minute, doesn't that sound like the dream job for a prophet? God just said, you get to go and call out against your enemies because their sin has come up before me. God was angry with them. Why would Jonah not want to go tell these people, my God is mad with you? In order to understand this, we actually need to jump forward a little bit all the way to Jonah chapter four, verse two. And it says, he prayed and said to the Lord, "O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So he didn't wanna go tell these people about the judgment of God because he knew that God would use that to cause them to come to repentance. Now, I used to think that Jonah was simply a fearful man. I used to think that he was afraid to go to Nineveh because he was nervous about what these people might do to him. I always thought of him as a wimpy guy who kind of shook in his boots when he was told to speak to this powerful king in the most powerful city, in the most powerful empire in the world. But that is not his problem. In order to illustrate, allow me to take you back to the very distant past, the year 2000. Now imagine that you knew what was going to happen on September 11th. You know that Islamic terrorists are going to hijack planes and they are going to crash them into the World Trade Center and other locations around our nation. And you know that the Twin Towers are going to be hit in such a way that it will cost thousands of lives. And you know that something, this something that is going to take place is not only possible but guaranteed to happen and that nothing you can do will change it. Now, imagine you know that, but then God says to you, I want you to go to Al-Qaeda, and I want you to speak to the caliphate, and I want you to tell them about me. And even though you know that they are going to come and attack your people, even though they know, you know they are going to brutalize your nation, I want you to go to them. Jonah knew that these were enemies of God and that their children and grandchildren would come and wipe out his own and his own kingdom and the crown of Israel, and he was right. And eventually, under the rule of Sennacherib, that's precisely what happened. So the actions of Jonah in this passage are not the actions of a coward, they are the actions of someone who put his nation and his personal bias over his obedience to the Lord. His own people would have viewed his actions as patriotic, but his actions were disobedient and they were foolish. So as we walk through the rest of this chapter, what I want to show you is the glaring evidence that this was a man who was not acting out of fear but out of a committed hatred for the Assyrians. Now we first see this commitment to rebel in verse three. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now repetition in the Bible is always intended to grab your attention. It is designed to bring emphasis to the text. The Holy Spirit never wastes any ink in the Bible. So notice that phrase, away from the presence of the Lord, is repeated. You see it twice in this one verse. The literal Hebrew rendering of that phrase is away from the face or away from the countenance of the Lord. It's a phrase that we see often in the Old Testament. Let me just give you a couple of examples. First, we see it when Adam and Eve sinned and they were cast out of the garden away from the presence of the Lord. We see it again when Cain killed Abel and he was cast out away from the presence of the Lord. We see it again when Esau rejected the Lord and wanted nothing to do with the promise. He wanted nothing to do with his brother. He went away from the presence of the Lord. And now we see Jonah the prophet intentionally running away from God's presence. So he goes down to the docks to find a ship headed to Tarshish. And the author highlights for us the fact that he paid the fare to get on board. Now, two quick things to notice here. First of all, the Israelite people rarely ventured out onto the Mediterranean. Now, you would think that being that they lived right there in the place that would make it an evident place for them to rule over the eastern end of the Mediterranean, that they would probably be a seafaring people but they feared the sea. Instead of being seafaring, they were fearing, and they did not go out on the ocean or on the Mediterranean. This little country, unlike all of their neighbors, never had a single navy. Now there's a reason that heaven is described to them as a place that is peaceable, where even the waves are so calm they are like glass. But Jonah boldly boarded the ship, not caring for his own safety. He went ahead and he got on. And now secondly, this trip would have been very expensive. Cargo ships like this one rarely allowed non-working passengers. They consumed very precious commodities like food and water, and they created a, more pot- a lot more potential for problems if they got sick or were injured. So the price for transport was extremely high, especially in this case because of the great distance. Now although we're not exactly certain where Tarshish is, most scholars believe that this is probably the port of Tarsesos, which is all the way over in southern Spain. If you know your geography, near the Rock of Gibraltar. So this is as far away as you can get and still be in the Mediterranean Sea. So Jonah gave up a great deal to get as far away as humanly possible from his homeland. He gave up a great deal of wealth in order to get away from his calling as far as he possibly could. Now verse phrase begins with that our verse 3 begins with this little phrase, but Jonah. And now you'll notice the response of the Lord we find in verse four begins with, but God, regardless of Jonah's plan, God was sovereignly working through all things, even the weather to carry out his plan. Verse four says, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. I was once in a foreign country with a friend of mine. Um, This was um, a former Soviet nation, and we were visiting a family of believers Uh, that was mixed with believers and unbelievers, and we were going to share the gospel around the dinner table with those who didn't yet know Christ. And this happened to be in a place um, where the Soviet Union had done a great deal of damage to the society and culture and to the economy, and we were in a building that was built during the Soviet era, and I can tell you that it would not have passed any American Code's Uh, for uh, building inspection or enforcement. And we entered into this elevator in this building to go up to one of the higher-level floors, and as we began moving up, the elevator, we quickly realized, was not up to the standards we were used to for elevators here. It was rickety, it was kind of moving back and forth side to side, it sounded like it was bumping the outside walls, although I'm not sure if that's what was happening. And then as we reached maybe the third or fourth floor, it just abruptly stopped, and all of the lights turned out. And the person who was with me, this individual who I was uh, going up in this elevator with, was typically a, very, a person I view as very strong, a person I view as uh, very tough. And he was not in this moment. Uh, he began to break down, and he began to bang on the walls, and he began to quickly call on his phone whoever he could find to come and try to help them get out of this elevator. And as he did that, a red light started blinking and a little buzzer started sounding and then he got bug against the wall and he was ready to freak out. What's going on? What do we need to do? How are we going to get out of here? Now, this man who was in this with me is one of the people I would view typically as one of the toughest people that I know. But now he was terrified. Let me tell you, Jonah, as we are seeing and experiencing here, Uh, this is not the attitude of a terrified man. These are not the actions of a wimp. He is in the middle of a storm in the sea, completely asleep. Now, do you remember when Jesus was sleeping in the boat and there was a storm and his disciples woke him up and they said, don't you care if we drowned? The fact that he was not willing to wake up was an indication to them that he was not Afraid. He didn't care. There was nothing in his heart that was discerning, uh, discouraged about what was taking place around them. There's a reason the disciples were so amazed when they were certain that they were going to die, but Jesus declared to the wind and waves, Peace be still. Jonah didn't care if he died because it meant that he still didn't have to go to Nineveh. Everyone else on the ship was running around frantically throwing things into the sea just to try to lighten the weight of the ship, but Jonah just kept snoring. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, O sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give thought to us that we might not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we might know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Even the most pagan people become much more religious when death is imminent. Now the sailors began calling out to their gods, pleading for help, and they told Jonah, Whoever your God is... Just pray to him. Maybe he will listen to us. Maybe that's the God that will hear. But the sailors had surely been in storms before. These people are seasoned on the Mediterranean. This storm must have been different. It was a storm that they knew represented the anger of God. They cast lots to determine the culprit and God in his, sovereign, in his sovereignty actually caused the lots to work and unmask Jonah as the cause of the storm. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Verse eight, then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made sea and dry, the sea and dry land. Now notice that they asked him several questions, but there's only one that Jonah refuses to answer. Their very first question, what is your occupation? Jonah never tells them. What would he have said? I'm a prophet. You see, my job is to tell people what God says so that they will obey it. Ironically, he is the one who has heard the word of the Lord and he will not obey it. He doesn't tell them because he's doing the exact opposite of what his profession calls him to do. Instead, he starts by listing his nationality. Now, If you meet someone for the first time and somebody begins to share a little bit about themselves, the person leads with whatever is most important to them. So Jonah leads with his nationality. I am a Hebrew. And then he puts that he fears God second. That's exactly how we see things playing out here in this text. I am a Hebrew and I fear God. His Hebrew nationalism is displayed even in the minuscule resume that he gives to them. Verse 10, then the men who were exceedingly afraid said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Now there's something really interesting that we see taking place here in this book. Every single person in the entire narrative that in any way comes into the story, every single one of them heeds and honors the Lord. Every single one of them follows what he says immediately every pagan sailor, every Assyrian citizen, everyone except Jonah. The sailors knew the reputation of the God of Israel, and they knew that he was the living God, and that it would be insane to run from him. What have you done, Jonah? Then they said to him, what shall we do with you that the sea might quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. These are not the words of a coward. A coward does not say, just kill me. He was a zealot. He was committed to the destruction of Assyria, even at the cost of his own life. He was willing to die for this cause. He did not want those people to experience mercy. So he does not say, just turn the ship around. He says, throw me in. The sailors don't want to do it. Clearly, we see them attempting to go the other direction, They attempt every other possible avenue to protect themselves, but finally they had to relent. And we read in verse 13, Nevertheless, Sorry, my thing won't work. Nevertheless, they rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. But there is... I'm sorry. I'm trying. There we go. They tried to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, Let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, amazingly, it seems that through Jonah's rebellion, God gained an entire ship full of new converts. Now, these men who were previously worshiping other gods, seem to have had their lives transformed in this moment. So why did God let Jonah get this far in the opposite direction of Nineveh? Why did God not stop him when he was still on dry land? Why didn't he stop him before he got onto the boat? He let Jonah get this far because he was working even through Jonah's rebellion to save these sinners on the ship. We see that they made vows to the Lord. Now we're going to cover what that looks like a little bit more when we get to chapter 2. But simply put, it appears as though God brought about genuine spiritual transformation in them as they experienced God's power in this storm. Allow me to now close our time together with four observations. First, you cannot run from God. Jonah should have known this. He should have known Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10, which says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take to the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Jonah should have known there is nowhere you can go to escape the presence of the Lord. But I want to say to you, do you think that you can run? If you think that your sin is sufficiently hidden or that you have escaped some kind of consequences or that you can somehow manage to manipulate your way out of God's commands, you must know that God loves his children so much that he will not simply allow you to wallow in that sin. He will stop you. Secondly, God was not willing to let Jonah get away. One of the great promises of God to his people is that he will never leave us or forsake us. If you are in Christ, there is a promise that he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. Genuine believers can and will fall into sin. Look at Jonah. But those who truly belong to Christ will be pursued by the Lord and will be drawn back out of it. God pursues us through suffering. He pursues us through fellow believers and church discipline and internal guilt and a billion other avenues of circumstance. The next time that we are together, we're going to learn more of what that looks like through the process of discipline. But for now, we simply want to rest in the fact that God does not let those who have been genuinely saved ultimately fall away. Now, you can, like Jonah, for a moment, run. But God always completes what he starts. If someone runs and never returns, never repents, it is an indication that they have never been truly saved in the first place. So brothers and sisters, do not make God send a storm. Make your calling and election sure by living out your faith. Now third, there is never a legitimate reason for disobedience. Jonah seemed to think that he was wiser than God. God, don't you know who those people are? Don't you know that they are vile? Don't you know what kind of evil atrocities and murderous acts they, they commit? Don't you remember that they are the ones who are going to attack us and kill us? Why on earth would you send me, your righteous prophet, to those people? Jonah did not have an excuse to run, and neither do you. There is never a cause to justify your sin against the Lord. He's not been ambiguous about his will for your life. He has told you in the pages of his word, your actions will betray your beliefs. Do you believe that God is worthy of every part of your life? Do you believe that he is worthy of your obedience? If so, obedience is the very best way to show that you believe, doing exactly what the Lord commands and doing it happily, just like my kiddos sang earlier today. Point number four, and finally, Jesus is the consummate missionary. Now, if I left this sermon out without this final observation, I would have failed you. This would be nothing more than a moralistic sermon telling you, just obey, obey. But that is not the point of this chapter. This is the ultimate point, that just like Jonah, Jesus was sent by God the Father on a mission, a mission to proclaim good news to his enemies. But instead of running away or refusing, Jesus perfectly submitted in every way to the will of his Father. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He did not run from his enemies, but he ran to them to seek them and save them. He did not despise us. He laid down his life for us. Now, even if you learn from the story of Jonah and said that you would always obey God's rules, from this point forward, I'm putting my foot down. I am just going to work harder. I am going to obey. I will not be like Jonah. I will not run. I will just submit. Let's say that you made that decision right now. Well, first of all, congratulations. I'm glad you do that. But I'm sorry to tell you, you're gonna fail. Eventually, the day will come probably tomorrow or this afternoon, where you will forget what you have said and you will fail. And you will dishonor the Lord in your thoughts and in your life, in your actions and in your words. One sin is enough to earn eternal separation from God and you have already eliminated yourself for contention for heaven based upon your own life. So even if you were capable from this point forward of getting everything right, you have a record that goes back to your birth of all of the ways that you've got it wrong. Salvation is only possible because Jesus is greater than Jonah. When we were still sinners, Christ didn't just come to preach to us. He didn't just tell us to obey. Jesus came to live for us and to die for us. He didn't just come to show us how to live. He came to give us life. He not only came to show us mercy and show us how to obey, he came to obey on our behalf so that his actions at his death were credited to us. Merry Christmas, Jesus came into the world in order to preach good news to his enemies. And in doing so, he became the greater Jonah, the greater missionary, the one who came to save sinners like you and I. What I'd like to do at this point, uh, being that this is the last time that we are going to gather on a Sunday morning before Christmas, and this is the last time that I will be preaching to you this calendar year, I would like for you just to imagine for a moment the manger scene. You have Jesus, the Son of God, coming and being born for us. Now, to be honest, there's nothing extraordinary about the birth of Jesus in the sense that he was born just like every one of us was born. Uh, I have five kiddos. I was in the room for four of them being born and just missed the last one by eight minutes. Um, birth is birth. It's all the things surrounding the birth of Jesus that were miraculous. Everything surrounding it, in particular and most significantly, the incarnation, the way in which Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, apart from any man. God gave Jesus to us in this process. We have much to worship. We see that the God of heaven became flesh, and he dwelt on among us, that this God was fully God and fully man for us, laid in this lowly place. So what I would like to do is just say with you, would you be willing to bow the knee before him, just like the shepherds came and worshiped around the manger, that this last time I have to pray with you before the, the year ends, would you bow the knee with me and pray to this Lord as we come and adore him? Let's bow together. Yeah. Father God, we are so thankful that Jesus is not like Jonah. We are so thankful that when Jonah ran away from you, that Jesus ran to you, that he ran in obedience, that he lived a life where he came to be born of a virgin, born under the law, so that we who were also likewise born under the law might be freed from it. We thank you, Lord, that he obeyed in every way, that in every avenue that we have failed, he walked in perfection. And we pray, Lord, that as we consider him, this child who was laid in the manger, that we would not cease and think of him only as an infant, but we would consider who he is, the God of the universe who is ruling and reigning as our king right now. Father, I pray for every heart in this room that we would adore him and that we would display our love for him through obedience. Lord, I pray that we would never get the cart before the horse and think that obedience is the way that we receive your love, but it is simply the way that we display that we have been loved. Father, help us to know that. Help us to live that out every day of our lives. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and King, thank you for sending him for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.